0: Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. This episode covers the out-of-town events in Season 3, Part 6, what takes place in non-Twin Peaks locations. In New York, once again, we get nothing. Buenos Aires, we get nothing. We have the FBI in South Dakota. There's not much of this in this episode, but it is pretty important what we do see, and it has to do with the whole Yankton federal prison storyline. And Buckhorn, in fact, is not in this episode at all in any way. No Hastings case. What we see of this storyline is Albert going to find Diane so that she can come talk to Mr. C in the prison and they can get her perspective on what's going on with him. And we see Albert driving along in some city. We're not sure if it's D.C., New York, Philadelphia, or where, of course, it's actually L.A., but with the rain and heavy clothing, it doesn't seem like it. And Gordon is talking to Albert and uh, we hear a woman in the background. This is our first hint that he's kind of a Lothario Uh, I take that back, actually. Denise told us that in part uh, four. So, you know, we we know that he likes the younger women. We see Albert driving along, kind of grumbling to himself as he listens to Gordon having a good time drinking wine with someone far away, and he's driving through the rain. He finds Diane in the bar, and he sees this woman with a blonde wig turned around and she he calls her name and she turns and says hello Albert and that's it that's all we get of that little storyline but it's pretty damn memorable I'd also like to note that Max Vaughn's which is a Sunset Boulevard reference by the way to Max von Maryling the character played by Eric von Stroheim that's the name of the bar and it's one of the great uh, Twin Peaks neon signs it can stand up there with the book house or the roadhouse or One-Eyed Jax. Lynch just has a penchant for making these really cool neon signs. This, in some ways, One-Eyed Jacks is probably the most memorable, but this is up there. It's got, like, a director's uh, megaphone, which is another, you know, sign that this is referring, not to Max von Sydow, but to Max von Mariling there's like a tilt of the camera move as it pulls past it as albert walks past it it's just a cool little moment right at the same time he's cursing out gene kelly because of you know singing in the rain so you get these two little nifties 50s uh movie references back to back in the mr c storyline we have nothing this episode we see no mr c this is the first episode where we don't spend any time with that character whatsoever moving on to las vegas We see a lot of Dougie this episode. In the home life part of his story, we see Janie E. taking him in when he's brought home by cops. She gives him a sandwich. They eat these very crunchy sandwiches. I don't know if they put the potato chips inside, but... He's just given, actually, I take that back. She eats a sandwich and he eats potato chips. Uh, I don't know if he eats the sandwich first off screen, but whenever we see him, he's walking around with this bag of potato chips crunching down on it. It's pretty funny. It's like a new culinary motif for Twin Peaks that seems so disconnected from the earthier kind of pastries that everybody enjoys, just these bag of potato chips. She sends him upstairs to say goodnight to Sonny Jim and they talk, if you can call it talking, where he just kind of repeats things Sonny Jim says to him. But the son seems really happy to have his dad there sitting on the bed, and he wants him to stay until he falls asleep. But Janie calls him back down, so the d- disappointed boy kind of turns over in bed and, you know, doesn't doesn't get to have his dad uh, stay till he falls asleep. But it's a nice moment between father and son in its own quirky way. People wondered up to this point if Sonny Jim could talk, because before this scene, he's in, I think, three or four different scenes, and he never says a word until this moment. So finally he says something that's like, oh, okay, I guess he can talk after all. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, his very first line in in the series is, I already brushed my teeth, which is Cooper's last line in The Missing Pieces, or I should say Mr. C, the early Mr. C, the early doppelganger's last line in The Missing Pieces. Sonny Jim's line is, I already brushed my teeth, and Mr. C's line at the end of The Missing Pieces was, I haven't brushed my teeth yet. So that's an interesting correspondence that I very much doubt is a coincidence. I mentioned previously Dougie's like wanders around the house a little like E.T. in that film, and there's really a sense of him as like the son's, he's almost like an exotic pet (laughs) here, like E.T. or Gremlins, where the son is telling him what to do and enjoying his malleability in a way that feels very Spielberg-y and and it's it's interesting because it also feels a bit like other types of Spielberg scenes where you see a father and a son bonding. Steven Spielberg must have just loved this storyline. I feel like unless he was just frustrated with the Dougie not being Cooper, but I mean, how could he not appreciate this kind of skewed tribute to his uh, favorite storytelling motifs, you know, combining the father figure and the alien figure. And, uh, you know, he's talked, I think, about E.T. being some kind of weird surrogate father where Even though the son is sort of, or the boy is sort of treating him like a child, he's also this wizened figure who can comfort him. And it's like the desire for a father who is also... Rather than sort of an imposing authority figure, somebody who's more down to earth and almost under your control in a way, but still able to provide those fatherly functions for you. And it's just something that actually I've never really thought about before. So that's interesting. It's this is giving me a new perspective on Spielberg in a way. You see those scenes with in Spielberg films where the father is, uh, you know, playing with the son. There's that scene in Jaws where they're doing the hand motions and the face. Roy Scheider and his son looking at each other and mimicking it's just a quiet moment between the more dramatic scenes and so it's interesting to see that type of father-son thing combined with these strange et type relationship uh, going on as well i also thought i spotted a monkey on the boys table which is kind of cool like the monkey at the end of twin peaks i think the only time we see a monkey in twin peaks is in firewalk with me uh, when when it says Judy. So that's interesting that the boy has the monkey on his desk. I, I'd assume that's not accidental. In the debt storyline, which folds into the home life storyline, uh, Janie E calls Dougie downstairs because she's just opened uh, an envelope that has a picture of Dougie, the old Dougie, and Jade walking out of somewhere. And she's of course upset, but Dougie is just, you know, happy to see the picture of Jade. It's just kind of funny. And uh, right as she's upset about this, it's obviously some sort of blackmail attempt from people he owes money to, Uh, she gets a call, and it's from the people, the, the collectors, the people that are trying to collect the debt. For Dougie and she says she handles it she says she's gonna set up a meeting with them in a park tomorrow and when she goes the next day she finds out that Dougie took points on a football game he doubled down and then three weeks past now he owes fifty two thousand from an initial twenty thousand dollar bet and she's furious at this and she totally tells off the two uh, you know loan sharks or whatever whatever whoever they are the collectors these sort of scummy looking guys and just tells them, you know, we are the 99%, we don't have that much money, even though they just got a huge bag full of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Of course, she's not going to tell them that. And she insists on just paying them 25000 because that's, you know, a fair amount of interest. And she totally tells them off. It's a very funny scene that also serves a purpose of showing us the storyline was a bit of a red herring. We were wondering if these were the people who were trying to kill Cooper. And clearly, they're not. They're they're too kind of disarrayed and competent to be doing that. And it also gives us a nice way to kind of invest in Janie E as a character. If we've just been seeing her as this somewhat shrewish housewife stereotype that they've been playing up, now we kind of see her as this uh, more sympathetic figure. If if that's where we're at, I think I was already kind of charmed by her by the time she's. Eating the sandwich and making the little sh- hand motion to Dougie while she's talking on the phone. I just thought, okay, I'm totally on board with this character. I, I think she's great. In the office uh, plot line of Dougie, we get a few different scenes in that area. First, we pick up with Dougie where we left off, where he's in the courtyard. And for some reason, he's trying to pull his jacket off. I don't know if it's something to do with his left arm going numb. Maybe something going on with Mr. C, I can't think of anything, but there's something interesting going on there. When he gets home, he scrawls all over the case files that Bushnell has given him, just drawing these little almost shoots and ladders type sketches. And later the next day, when he gets to the office, uh, Bushnell calls him into the office and uh, takes a look at these case files and is totally perplexed, but then something dawns on him. See, he seems to get what they're all about, which is hilarious. And uh, meanwhile, Cooper's looking at the poster behind him of... Bushnell is a young man and he's kind of mimicking the boxing pose for some reason. It was also a funny sequence in this part where he's waiting on the elevator and he tries to get out and the doors close on him. He's just standing there grinning as the doors open and close and then he gets kind of compressed in them as he pauses to drink his coffee. It's pretty amusing. And there's also a quick shot of Anthony watching as Bushnell uh, calls uh, the Dougie Cooper into his office. Dougie Coop makes a strange uh, sort of motion in response to Bushnell when he puts his hand out to shake it. He puts his hand out and then he kind of turns sideways, almost like he's like dancing with somebody or embracing someone, just kind of holds the hand and moves. And he did a similar motion with Sonny Jim earlier. I'm not sure what it's all about, but it's funny because there are other times where he does seemingly random motions that do seem to have meaning. There's the scene where Sonny Jim points sort of a mock gun with his finger at him, and he, he touches his stomach and there's a sense that it's recalling episode seven of the old series where Cooper is shot in the Great Northern uh, by a mysterious figure in the doorway standing exactly as Sonny Jim is then. So there's these weird references across time and space and I wonder if something similar is going on here but I, I can't off the top of my head think what it might be. Oh, one more thing to note is Anthony has a random picture in his office of a red balloon uh, floating over a bunch of cacti no idea what it means I don't know what red balloons are doing in this series to begin with except of course the red balloon is a you know classic children's film and for some reason the return has more kids in it than any other David Lynch project so maybe that has something to do with it and on a totally pedantic note whoever made those uh, insurance files spelled supplemental wrong but that might actually be a uh, that could be on purpose to make it look like a more authentic document where you know The the typos are real. I don't know. The assassination storyline has a lot of different elements in play this episode. We see Duncan get this visual message from Mr. C. It's just a red square that pops up on his computer screen. He removes these files from a cabinet with, like, a, a, a cloth over his hand so he doesn't get fingerprints on them. We see Ike the Spike, this character... This uh, small guy in a motel who's rolling dice and drinking, and he gets a package or an envelope with pictures of Lorraine and Dougie, the original Dougie, and he stabs an ice pick in both of them. And later, we see him go to Lorraine's office and attack her and her co-workers. Really bloody, brutal murder sequence, where he's just stabbing into, and the blood spraying anywhere. And then he, and then he goes and attacks her co-worker and as he's walking out the little ice pick is bent and he kind of goes oh and he seems upset about it which is ridiculous we also visit the neighborhood that the 119 mother lives in where they tried to blow up Dougie where they did blow up Dougie's car but only the carjackers got hurt and later we see Lorraine get a call about this in the office and she says wait there were three bodies and I was wondering maybe the fact that they know that there were these bodies in the explosion they have no idea carjackers were there It makes me wonder if they think maybe it was uh, the hitmen, and so the hitmen are going to get out of this whole thing alive. Who knows? I'm not sure what's going on there. There's no Mitchum story material this episode at all. And then finally, Jade and the Great Northern Key and all that stuff. We do get Cooper smiling when he sees the picture of Jade and saying, Jade, (laughs) it's just hilarious. And it's funny, somebody used that as a gif on Twitter recently where uh, we were talking about Jade, or somebody else was talking about it, and I kind of jumped in because... They didn't really like the performance. They didn't like the character. And I was like, ah, oh, I thought everybody liked Jade. You know, I, I, I thought Nefessa Williams was was great in that part, she played the perfect straight woman to kind of introduce us to the Dougie concept. And I had seemed to have a lot of fun with it. And uh, somebody else responded, oh, I like her too. This is how I feel about that character. And it, they showed the the, you know, the shot of Cooper smiling as he, as he sees her picture. It's just kind of a funny moment. That's it for this episode. Tomorrow's episode will continue going into the town, the scenes that take place inside Twin Peaks in this episode. Some big ones there, for sure. Uh, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can support this work on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies, where I recently put up a belated Patreon episode several hours long talking about different topics, uh, so you can check that out. And one more note before we go. Uh, Julie Cruz passed away recently, and of course her song Floating, which is not in Twin Peaks, but was on the album that brought a lot of music to Twin Peaks. And uh, it just feels to me like such a theme of my work that I've done. It was the opening to Journey Through Twin Peaks video years ago. And, of course, just a beautiful voice and uh, will be missed as part of the Twin Peaks community. So R.I.P. Julie Cruz, and we'll go out, as always, on the note of her singing. But uh, I'm going to extend it a little more this time in Tribute.